Hello everyone, welcome to another episode of Tennis with an Accent. Today, uh, I'm joined by Craig O'Shaughnessy, uh, no stranger if you follow tennis. His work is pretty much uh, in the news these days. He's been covering tennis as an analyst, as a coach, as a commentator, and now he's uh, the mastermind, you know, who's delivering stats to top players and his recent association and continued association is with Novak Djokovic. Welcome, Craig, to the show. Thanks for doing this. Uh, my pleasure. Uh, great to be here. I'm in Austin, Texas today. Beautiful day and really nice to talk some tennis with the US Open coming up. Absolutely. So let's start with uh, your your journey into tennis. So you've uh, quite a diverse resume and very you know rich experiences. So to tell our listeners here, how did a brain game came into what it is today and how much did you, you know, uh, I'm not saying you're the Renaissance man, but you really are the uh, official stats guru, like who who's converted this, you know, these metrics into what players believe that can improve their game. And this is a very important strategic tool. So just walk us through how it started and where you are at now. I grew up in a country town in Australia called Albury. And um, as a junior, I was the kid that was going straight down to the courts after school, playing lots of sets. I didn't get hardly any lessons as a junior. Uh, it just wasn't kind of the, you know, what we did back then. And we just, everybody went to the courts. We played lots of sets. So I think, um, you know, looking back, I would have much rather cleaned up a lot of strokes um, as a junior. But I think playing so many sets helped my brain figure out the other side of the net and figure out the opponent and, and point me in a direction where strategy became very important because, you know, when you, you play a million sets as a kid, it's, um, the, you know, the, the strategy side of it is very important. So I went to college in the U.S. I have a journalism degree. When I finished, I, I'm like, well, do I either go writing uh, that side of it or do I get into tennis? And and I went the tennis route and for the better part of 20 years, I didn't write a thing. My, my fir- Actually, my first job out of high school, I worked for a newspaper in Albury for about a year and a half. So high school, and then working as a reporter, and then to college, and then nothing for 20 years. And um, I was at the US Open, I think it was around 2012, and I was approached by the New York Times to get some information about serving and serve strategy, and connected with them, and then started writing some match analysis stories during the tournament. And they they liked it, it was different, because it had a, a coach's viewpoint, it had stats involved, um, it wasn't just who won, it was why they won. So that kind of kicked me along the road a little bit. Then the ATP Tour became interested in this style of story. So, you know, I, my background is not stats. It's not math. I'm not a stat head. Uh, I almost failed math in high school. It's simply I, I'm involved in this area because strategy is so important. And the, to figure out whether should I serve wide or down the tee, is it better to hit a forehand or backhand? Is it okay to go to the net? All of these different either or situations, there's only one way to figure it out, and that is with the statistics of our sport. So I became very interested in that, did a lot of videotaping, a lot of dartfish match tagging, a lot of research of the best players in the world, simply to figure out what's better, uh, you know, what are the better patterns, and is there a better way to organize our practice court according to the new statistics in our sport? I, I wanted to stop guessing I wanted to remove my opinion and the opinion of all the coaches out there and just cut to the chase and get the facts. And, and, and that's how the, the journey um, started. 
So uh, you work with Kevin Anderson and Amir Delich and uh, Jesse Levine, some of the names. And now, of course, you are a consultant with Novak Djokovic with the, the stats part of the game. So how different was your role? I know stats is something that you just said it came natural to you because you studied the patterns, you understand, understood the trends, what it's happening across the net. But when you were a coach, was that the focal way of how you approach coaching Anderson? And now compared to how different it is when you supply these statistical data to Djokovic? It's exactly the same. Um, you know, it, probably 15 years ago, Dartfish came out with match tagging and that enabled me to record a match, hang a camera on the back of a fence, whether I'm working with a junior player or working with a tour player, record the match, bring it into the software, tag it. And at the end of the match, you know, we've always only looked at a match chronologically from start to finish. Now I had the ability to look at it by patterns of play. So I could... I could look at it, for example, I want to see all the forehand winners. I, I click a button that says eight. I, I click the number eight, and I can watch all the eight forehand winners from my player for the match. I could watch all the backhand return errors. I can watch all the approaching. I can watch all the serves out wide. So, you know, you can make each segment of the match a derivative and then analyze that derivative of the match and figure out what is working for your player and what is not. So when I first started doing it, about 15 years ago, when you tag a match, you actually are tagging both players. You're looking at all the information from your player, but you're also uh, recording all the data from the other side of the net from the opponent. And when I was working with Amir Delic and uh, another younger player, Brendan Evans, I think it was around 2011, you know, they lost during that, I think it was 2010, 2011. And during that period, there was 11 guys that they played where they lost the match, but in the next year they had a rematch against that player and we won 10 of the 11 rematches, lost, lost the first 11, then won 10 of the 11 simply because we knew the opponent. We knew their patterns. We knew their favorite spots. We knew where they served under pressure and we could counter that. So the exact same way I've been coaching Novak at the moment Um is the same way I started out in the sport. The first tournament I ever coached at professionally was the 2000, actually it was the 1995 Australian Open. And it was a girl from Madagascar called Dali Randri and Teffy. And, and literally I'd never coached at 10,000 or 15,000 or 100,000. It was straight in at the Grand Slam level. And I knew none of the opponents. I knew none of the girls that she was going to have to play in qualifying. Dali was around 262 in the world at the time. So I went to the practice court and I watched these girls practice and saw the tendencies and saw the errors. And sometimes it was just four on a court hitting for 30 minutes. But you pick up what the opponents, where they're comfortable, where they're not comfortable. And Dali wins three rounds of qualifying. She's in the main draw. She plays she plays Florencia Labat in the first round, who's 30. I think 32 in the world. Labat's a lefty. She's only hit slice backhands. So the strategy just looked to the other side of the court, and you, you just can't rally with a slice backhand. So I told Dali, you hit every single ball to this girl's backhand. When And then the magic number's three. One of If she hits three backhands in a row, one of those three will land short. You just can't rally deep with a slice backhand. And as soon as it is, you approach to her backhand and make her hit a backhand pass which is virtually impossible. So we just removed the forehand completely off the table, attacked the backhand like crazy, and she won, I think, three and five. 
The next round, she plays Patricia Tarabini. Uh, it was around 80 in the world. Tarabini's a righty with one of the best one-handed, right-handed backhands in the world. She'd beaten Nicole Pratt 0-0 in the previous round. And I asked Nicole, you know, what was going on? She said, I think I just hit too many balls to a backhand. So the strategy was really simple. You hit every single ball for the entire match to this girl's forehand. You serve there, you rally there, you don't hit a ball to the backhand side. She beats her in straight sets convincingly. I think it was two and two. Then she plays Mary Pierce. She loses three and three. Mary goes on to win the tournament. No one more, one more than six games against Mary. So early on in my coaching career, I put a lot of value on the other side of the net on the opponent and making them play bad and understanding their patterns. And that has continued all the way today. Even the work I've done with Novak to win Wimbledon this year and to win Cincinnati last week um, was basically the identical stuff and the same stuff I worked with Kevin Anderson, um, helping him and, and his coaching team go from outside the top 150 into the top 50. Louis Vosselo was his full-time coach at the time, and I assisted and did all the video work, and it was somewhat centered on Kevin um, and the problems he was having, but mostly centered on the other side of the net and how to play the opponent. Okay, it's very interesting stuff. So let me ask you this question. Uh, looks like this data, like you said, you study a player, and there are a lot of stats available now on different sites, uh, breaking every player down. So is there a variance involved? Suppose if you, say, uh, preparing Novak to play Roger and there are stats of Roger, but then there's also certain patterns that Roger only uses against Novak. So is there a collection of stats or you just study Roger, how he plays, and how is the information broken down? Just uh, not to get too much specific, but just... Or does this question even make sense? Yeah, no, it, t- it totally does. I mean, we have this view that... Players change a lot and they don't. Players change a little bit. They'll change a little bit by surface, a little bit by opponent. But no matter who is standing on the other side of the court, there's still favorite patterns that that player is wanting to employ. So you also want to factor in the opponent. So when, when, no, when Roger looks to the other side of the court and sees Novak, you know, the world knows that Roger's going to try and shorten the rallies. He's, he's going to not try and have long rallies against Novak, even though Roger did very well in the long rallies against Novak in Cincinnati in the final. It was, there were just too many short rallies. There was, there was too much pressure at the start of the point to try and finish it. And, um, you know, that's, Roger didn't play a good match, you know, by his own standards. And a lot of that can be trying to do something that's out of your comfort zone instead of letting the match come to you a little bit. So, um, I think in general, players change less than we think. Quite often, I'll form a strategy against an opponent that I may not know by looking at them play another opponent. Maybe it was six months earlier. Maybe even the surface was different. But I will see their patterns. I'll see where they're comfortable. I'll, you know, I'll see where they're trying to hide things on the court and, and where they're not. But um, there's a lot you can tell about a player just, just through a few games of watching them. Okay. So a couple of questions on Novak because the conversation should be centered around him. You know, he's, you know, your charge and you work with him. And uh, how did the partnership come along? And secondly, like, you know, uh, it's pretty known he's a world-class champion, a legend of the game. And most champions are pretty stubborn in their way because that's that's the greatness. That's what get them, got them there. So is there any resistance when you present him with certain data and certain stats? How does he consume those and is an open mind with the coaching team? I know it's a broad question, but uh, take a stab at it. Yeah, yeah. I met Marion Vida 
at Monte Carlo at the tournament. I think it was twenty, yeah, twenty sixteen. In Monte Carlo was when we first met, and and I just explained what I did. Um, I, I explained the, you know, the, this niche that I specialize in, and you know, I'd worked a lot with players around, uh, you know, a hundred to one hundred and fifty, and I'd taken myself out of that part of the tour and and kind of took a year to two off from working on the tour and, and I was looking to get back, but, but at the top level of the game. So we met, we talked, we, we talked for six months about, you know, how the relationship might work. And we started at the beginning of 2017. So Marion is absolutely fantastic. He's a great guy. He's got an excellent tennis mind. We get along fantastically well. I'm not at all the tournaments. I don't have to be. A lot of the work I do, I, I just need a, a, a copy of the match, a video of the match, and I'm able to get that remotely. Um, but when I am at the tournaments, I consult with Marion and, you know, he is the head coach, he's the boss, and, and um, you know, I, I do a lot with him. And as regards to Novak, you know, he is fantastic as well. You know, I asked him early on, you know, should I give you more data or less? And, you know, how do you like to consume it? And, and he's, he's like, give me, give me everything you've got. And um, uh, we met, I met with Novak and his agent, at the end of last year in LA um, to kind of set up this year. And we had about a two and a half hour lunch and he was so open. He was so looking to learn from the conversation and, and understand his game and understand the opponents. And, you know, the guy has been number one and for a very long time. He's been at the pinnacle of our sport, but his thirst for new knowledge and, and, and thirst for a deeper understanding and a clearer understanding um, was just fantastic. So he has been, an absolute pleasure to work with, and uh, and and the same for Marion. Okay, so I know the the stats angle is always studying numbers, and numbers usually don't lie because it presents you know collective information on the player and uh, the opponents in the field. Is there also a stat manual or uh, a brain game analysis? How someone like someone wants to reinvent or tinker their game, or that's something totally different? That's not there's no stats for that. I, I don't quite understand your question. Could you just repeat it one more time? Please? I mean, if someone is like, we always hear like a, a player has reinvented, uh, you know, a certain shot to stay more relevant. You know, it was said about Roger, now Djokovic is coming back with a different, different look. So, and it doesn't have to be specific to these guys, but uh, is there, are there any stats that help a coach or a player reinvent a certain style of play? Yeah, you know, the stats that we have in the game at the moment, uh, it, it, it's, our sport does a very poor job of, of stats in tennis. Um, we're very fractured. The, the very fact that you have an ATP governing body, a, a WTA governing body, an ITF governing body, the, the companies collecting stats, you have IBM, you have Infosys, you have SAP, you have Hawkeye, you've got another separate French company doing it at the French Open. Um, no one likes to share information. Everyone's keeping their own stuff. And a lot of the stats aren't really relevant to telling the story on who won and why. Uh, so with what I'm doing, you know, I, I started writing a lot about serve plus one and the first shot after the serve. It's very relevant. It's a big deal in holding serve. And now it's becoming more mainstream. Coaches are talking about it. It's finding its way on the TV. And something like a serve plus one, which is the first shot after the serve, is a really good way to look at our sport. Instead of looking at the serve and the following five ground strokes, look at it as the serve and the first ground stroke together as one unit 
and then the next shot. So, you know, you want to think of tennis as if I do this, what happens next? If I hit it here, where does it come back? So it's much more a two-way street than a one-way street. Um, rally length is a very big deal. We've never studied the length of the rally and what that, me- that, what that means to a match. But, you know, we discovered that around 70% of all points are in the zero through four shot range, which means that's a total of two shots each for each player, which is a serve and a return. And then the first two shots after, which it's very different to hit a ground stroke following a ground stroke. They're, you're not um, impacted by core position or time very much. But when you hit a ground stroke following a serve or return, you are. It's a, there's a lot more pressure involved. So the more I look at rally length, the more I understand it, the, the, the more it becomes a very important piece of our coaching. Yet it's only just starting to be understood and, and work its way into the mainstream media. So um, th- th- those areas in particular will we'll have more and more detail associated to them and more and more understanding as we move forward. Uh, is it fair to assess from what you just said that uh, tennis compared to say, other sports is uh, still uh, this uh, the reliance on data, especially at a coaching level uh, and that too at a, at, a, at a very broken down granular level is something new, say compared to the NBA or uh, baseball or even cricket back in Australia? And part, and part two of yeah. the question is... Uh, uh, do you have many folks in the circuit that are doing what you are doing? Uh, what I'm trying to say is, is this kind of uh, data and service uh, been only uh, afforded by top men like Djokovic, Federer, or is, is this something very normal on the tour and most players are trying to consume data analysis on how to improve their game? You know, I've, I've written a lot of stories on the ATP Tour website using data uh, primar- primarily from Infosys. So those stories live there. The ATP players are always on the site. They're reading those stories. You know, the, the, the big deal with this kind of work is that it's it's just the facts. It's just here are the numbers that the match produce. So, you know, it's hard to fight. It's hard to have an opinion that says, here's the numbers say this, and your opinion says something different. It's very hard for players to, to say something's black and know that they think it's white. So, it's sticking really well. Um, it's being used more and more. I don't know anybody out there that has hired somebody just to analyze their game and to understand the opponents. I, I believe I'm the only one hired for that specific reason. But the more I talk to players and coaches, the more they're wanting to consume and understand the data. So it is definitely on the rise in our sport. Uh, Matt Zemek, who I partner with on this website, and you know uh, he writes uh, for our site, and he also partners me in the podcast. He had sent some questions for you. So one of the question is, uh, what is according to you the most underused shot on the ATP tour right now? The most underused. Um, it's a good question. I would say the slice serve at the body in, in general, and it's you know it's probably you know these kids are learning and growing up learning kick serves and a lot of kick and it's the kick serve to the backhand. Um, you know, 20, 30 years ago, it was all slice serves on second serves. And the more you can have both, the better. I, I think we, I think there's just guys are rolling their eyes into the back of the head and going, you know, let me just hit another kick serve out to the backhand and start a point on a second serve. Or I think there's a lot of value to go body and to go with slice and to make the ball follow the, the returner as they try and get away from it. So I, I, whenever I see it, I see it work. I see it done well. 
Um, I, I don't see it very often at all. Is it something Sampras used a lot or that's a different um, Yeah, Sampras used it. You know, there's and there's varying degrees of kick and slice as well. You can have both. Um, you can you can have, you know, the twist where it comes in at one direction and kicks out the other direction. Um, you know, Nadal has, you know, basically a very pure second serve slice, um, but not a lot of righties do it. Not a lot of righties bring it into the body, and, and I, I really think it's a fantastic serve. Uh, and uh, still sticking with the serve conversation, the way Nick Kyrgios has been serving, you know, he's you know serving these big bombs in second serve. There's literally no distinction. And a lot of time, in his case, second is bigger. So you think, is that uh, a trend that could be a stat? And, uh, and you, do you see a lot of other players doing that, or he's someone who's just taking these huge... No, he's not. I, I really agree with what he's doing. You know, it's And again... It's not because I, I like the strategy per se. It's that I, I see what it does to the opponent's mind. I see the win percentages. I see the residual effect. You know, I work with Dustin Brown at, to beat Nadal at Wimbledon, and Dustin does a very similar thing where occasionally you'll hit a, sec, uh, a second serve flat out. And I, I like it. I think it's great. Um, you know, IBM has done some research, you know, is it actually better to hit two first serves instead of one? And it's not. I think there's there's a case maybe with a guy like Karlovic, barely, barely should he, you know, could he entertain the idea of doing it? But, you know, Nick is one of the, the premier servers in the history of our sport. His service motion is is unreadable between between a wide serve and a, and a, and a serve down the tee. I've overlaid them both. Um, same motion, same speed, same toss, same spot, two different locations. So you can't read it. It's a quick motion, so things happen quickly, and you have no clue what's coming. It could be – I remember when he beat Novak in Indian Wells, I believe it was, last year, where um, he hit the slowest second set of the match deep in the second set. Maybe it was at like at 5-6 in the second set. Um, you know, probably, you know, around the 80 mile an hour mark. And the next second survey, it was in the tiebreaker and it was like 126 miles an hour. So, you know, two second serves separated by a little bit of time, but it was literally the slowest followed by the fastest. And it, it's, it's very difficult for, for opponents to groove on that. They don't know where it's going. They don't know the speed it's coming. Very unpredictable and very, very smart from Nick. Um, to, to, to keep the opponent guessing. And, and I, I think a lot of players can copy that. And um, let's, uh, if, if you were to suppose uh, Coach uh, Kyrgios or like back in the day, Ivanisevich, he was also known to go for big serves. So do, uh, do you think for a big server, is it good to have a variation or if you can just bring the heat uh, at that level, you know, the coaches really want to maximize? Because Federer and uh, Djokovic, you know, they, they pick their spots and, you know, some of the servers are not serves are not as big, but it's the placement that matters. So, uh, what is the data suggesting? You know, if you were coaching a guy like Kyrgios, uh, would you incorporate uh, variations in his delivery? Yeah, absolutely. The, the The special sauce is in the mix. You know, if if serving bombs and serving aces was the answer, we would see John Isner at rank number one in the world. We would see. Ivo Karlovic ranked number two in the world. We would see Kevin Anderson three in the world, and they, they would have been for several years. And we know that that's not the case. So we know that just raw brute power and, and collecting aces is only part of the equation. I saw some data at Wimbledon that said, 
you know, Isner was leading the tournament in aces, but when it, when the serve came back against Isner, he actually had a losing percentage for the rest of the rally. I think it was right, 48% chance of winning the rally after that, just if the serve could come back. So, you know, it, it's it's when the serve come back comes back where John has had problems. And I spoke to John a couple of years back at the US Open. I said, dude, you've, you've got to incorporate some serve and volley. You do none of it. And, and, um, and, and he's like, well, you know, my serve's really good. I don't think I need to. But the serve and volley strategy is, is very specific to when the ball comes back, where is John standing? Would he rather be on the baseline, you know, defending with a backhand or would he rather be on his way to the net hitting a volley? And he serves and volleyed more this year than ever. You know, he's having his deepest run in the biggest tournaments than ever. And, um, you know, that, that's that's really helping his game. A serve is such a, again, one of the most important shots out there because you pretty much control it. You know, you don't have the opponent. Uh, your opponent doesn't have much of a say. It's coming out of your racket. Uh, but has the statistical data changed, say, from the Sampras years to now what these guys are playing? Has, has, has the data overall changed? Yeah, we are in the golden age of the returner. So in the mid-90s, was when the, the, the serve numbers were at their peak. And I did an analysis of the number one player in the world between 1991 and 2017. And you look at all of their serve metrics and all of the return metrics. So the data set is only one player for each year. If you finish one, you're in this data set. And when we look at the peak performers returning from 1991 to 2017, no one um, from 1991 to 2009 were in the top seven years. The best seven years returning are all in the past seven years by the guys in between 2010 and 2017. So, you know, if, if you were number one in the world in 98, you were not one of the best returners in the history of our sport. It's, it's Lately, it's Djokovic, it's Murray, it's Nadal. Um, they are the best returners in our sport. And, you know, whether it's the speed of the court, whether it's the balls, whether it's the rackets, whatever it is, um, the it, it, and I really believe it's the sand that they're putting in the courts, in, in the, the sand and the paint that slows the ball down the most, particularly at the US Open, that is really lending itself to the returner um, being on serves a whole lot more than they were in the mid-90s. Mm. Interesting. So let's do a quick segue as we wrap this up about the upcoming U.S. Open only uh, five days away now. So if you were to handicap the men's field, uh, how do you see? The, is it top heavy or do you see anyone outside of the top, the big three, uh, maybe Chilich and Zverev? Do you see anyone, maybe Del Potro? How do you look at this field right now without looking, because the draw is not released yet? Yeah, exactly. You know, I think it's what we saw last year with Kevin Anderson going deep, which was a surprise. We saw Diego Schwartzman going deep which was a surprise, and Carino Booster going deep, which was a bit of a surprise. Um, and, you know, when Novak steps away and Andy, Andy Murray steps away, it opens those spots. But, but those guys have all got experience now, and they're, they, they're all ready to raise their hand. So, you know, Novak's in a very good place coming in. Raf is in a very good place coming in. You know, Roger now he needs a match or two to, to get his swagger back and, and, and find his place. And the U.S. Open's a perfect spot for him to do it. So, you know, Cincinnati wasn't, even though he made the final, Cincinnati, you know, his level wasn't great. Um, but, you know, he, he, U.S. Open is a great place for him to find that level. But, 
you know, there's Alexander Zverev is going to come on at some stage. He's, he's going to win slams at some stage. Um, you know, I, I think in general, he stays back too much. He rallies too much. He moves back at an angle when he hits forehands too much. And over five sets, it just gets found out. So he's, you know, over three sets, it doesn't. Over three sets, and you know, he's more, he's more comfortable on clay where he's got time, but he's going to have to adjust his game a little bit and, and look to come forward, look to hold the baseline, look to modify his forehand technique to not get rushed and, and get that contact point back. Um, but, you know, he's coming at some stage. Um, you know, Dominic Team is too good of a player to not do well on hard courts and, and go deep as well. So, um, you know, I, I think there's there's a lot of guys that can put their hand up this year at the US Open and, and, and make a really solid run. And, you know, at some stage, you would hope that Nick Kyrgios gets it together in a slam for a couple of weeks. And, you know, I say that he's... He's already done extremely well in, in some quarters at slams, particularly Wimbledon. Um, but, you know, wh- wh- when does the semi come? When does the final come? And his level of play is very good. He, he just needs to, you know, keep it mentally together for a couple of weeks. And, and he's certainly capable of winning slams as well. Okay, so let's wrap this up. I know there's uh, one more question here. So you think the way the game has evolved, and uh, it's, it's pretty much talked about, will we ever see a Becker or a Nadal? you know, just burst through the scene as a teenager and, you know, win a slam. What are the chances? Of course, you know, uh, you don't have to make a projection, but the way the game is played, what does the st- statistical data say for a teenager of that magnitude to try to big? Our sport goes in waves. And, you, you know, when you get some fantastic returners like we've had, the other guys look at these players, you know, if they're smart and said, if, should I stay at the back of the court against Nadal and, and or Djokovic? I mean, it's just too difficult. So what happens is these players start to look to come forward or look to look to play down the line or, you know, that, that you have to adapt. You know, it's adapt or die. So, you know, the game style that Pass has is fantastic. You know, it's taking the ball earlier. It's going down the line with the backhand. It's playing big off the forehand. It's staying around the baseline. You know, Marco Cecchinato... Um, at the French Open had a fantastic game style that did extremely well. And, you know, he's broken through and winning ATP titles and going deep in slams. So, you know, it, because we've had this wave of older players staying in the game, mainly because, you know, we've got full-time physios now looking after their body and they're managing their, you know, they're not playing as many events throughout the year. So you can play longer. Their bodies are not aging and wearing down at the same stage. So, you know, we've got a really strong bunch of next-gen players right now in the 19, 20, 21 age group that are doing fantastically well. So, yeah, absolutely, the, the, the sport will evolve and swing back. And all of a sudden, you know, we start to see, you know, a young guy like a Hewitt, um, how he came through or a Becker come through. There's, it, it's, you know, the, the sport evolves and you just can't say that we've, we've moved to a period now where, where that's not going to happen. We've certainly moved to an older period, but there's nothing that says a younger period can't come back. Okay, on that note, I think, Craig, um, uh, I think I learned quite a lot. It's very informative chat. Thanks for doing this. Wish you continued success with Novak and other ventures you have. And hopefully we'll have you back on the podcast sometime very soon. I, I greatly appreciate it. Thank you for your time. And I hope the listeners can take something out of this for their own game.